0: Welcome to Cinema of Meaning, the podcast from myself, Thomas Flight, and fellow video essayist Tom van der Linden from Like Stories of Old, that seeks to explore the depths of what cinema has to offer. This week we're talking about Christopher Nolan's Tenet. So Tom, what were your expectations going into Tenet and uh, did it live up to those or defy those? What were your f- impressions?
1: I didn't have any strong expectations um, the trailers looked like pretty typical Nolan stuff. It felt a bit James Bondy with the typical Nolan sci-fi twist to it, which is, of course, the concept of inversion, which we'll get into. So, yeah, I didn't go in expecting much. I knew it was going to be a very high-budget film. I think it was the highest-budget film for Nolan, at least. If I remember correctly, I don't have the facts here with me right now. That's sort of what I knew going in it, that john david washington robert patterson like some pretty cool actors so i was
0: like yeah
1: i was excited for it
0: yeah small follow-up question just Mm -hmm. for my own curiosity what's maybe your favorite nolan film if you had to pick one and like are you generally like a big fan of his films or just Mm. how how do you follow on that
1: yeah i'm i consider myself a big nolan fan and i'd even say like That I thought he was cool before everyone else thought he was cool. I remember (laughs) having seen Memento and then The Prestige and uh, even Insomnia, which I thought was pretty good. And so I was really uh, interested in where this small, like, indie filmmaker was going. And then, of course, he made Batman Begins was like a solid movie, but it didn't put him, like, on everyone's radar as much as um, The Dark Knight, obviously, ended up doing that. I remember seeing that in theater and it was just, I remember it hit like a bombshell and I thought it was amazing. Even though I didn't, I was like a fan of Batman Begins and the Batman character in general, but it wasn't until The Dark Knight that I really was like, wow, this is an amazing character and an amazing film. And I remember reading in the newspaper the next day that it it had like this big headline that Dark Knight writes film history. And I was like, wow, okay, this is something huge. And then from yeah. there on, of course, he, Nolan became the big blockbuster name. Inception, All, Interstellar. The I didn't. I wasn't a fan of the Dark Knight Rises. Uh, I am a big fan of Interstellar. And then Dunkirk, of course, was a really interesting change of pace with going back to this historical setting instead of like a exposition-heavy sci-fi concept and towards right. this almost silent, purely visually told story. So yeah, I, I consider myself a fan.
0: So how do you think this movie like fits, especially with what you were saying about mm-hmm. Dunkirk and maybe moving away from exposition? How did you feel this fit into that kind of stylistic arc?
1: Yeah, I was disappointed in that sense a little bit at first, at least. Sure. I think I've seen Tenet, like just to give you my general opinion, I've seen Tenet, I think five times now. The last time okay. uh, was last night. I keep coming back and forth a little like like... One, the first viewing, I was uh, confused and I didn't get it, but I was like, okay, maybe I have to see it again and then things will fall into place. But then the second time it made even less sense. And then the third time I was, <laughs> yeah. I sort of let go of trying to make sense of it. And right. I s- found some some enjoyment in it that I didn't have before. But then the fourth time I was like, okay, maybe th- th- there's some parts that there's no excuse for this not making sense. And I really wished it made more sense in certain areas. Yeah. And then the fifth time, yeah, it's it's pretty much the same. Like I think it's yeah. an entertaining film. I enjoy watching it. I think it has some cool set pieces. I really like the actors and the energy of it. As of, I really like how especially John David Washington, he brings like this physicality to it like when he's running he's like really running and that's yeah and, and even his fight scenes are pretty incredible especially the ones that have the sort of reversal or the inverse yeah spoiler alert like fighting himself yeah other than that there's compared to dunkirk especially compared to dunkirk i was hoping for a stronger visual story, like it's something yeah. that makes more sense visually. I thought it was a step back in that regard, like because Nolan was always criticized for uh being too exposition heavy and explaining things too much and not letting the sort of images speak for themselves. And then Dunkirk was almost without dialogue and yeah it was really surprising. I thought he was really pushing himself to tell this story without the crutches he had been relying on it, so in that sense yeah, it felt it felt like a step back to me. I'm not sure what what are your thoughts on on that in that matter
0: Well, people who watch my channel, I made a video about its exposition or nolan's kind of mm-hmm. struggle with exposition in general, so I definitely think that exposition is a weak point for him, and I enjoyed seeing him take a step away from that in in Dunkirk, and I agree that sort of the visual storytelling is. The week as part of this, um, I've seen it three times now. Last night was the third time I watched mm-hmm. it, and I I had a slightly different arc from yours. I think the first time I watched it, I felt similar. I was <laughs> like, "This is fun, but it doesn't make any sense." Like, I had a great time. It might have partially. It might have been like I saw it in theaters, and it was the first thing I had seen in like a year in a theater, so that was exciting. But I did enjoy the action. I enjoyed the set pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was also, yeah, I was confused, hopelessly <laughs> confused. And again, this and like you, the second time, I was hoping that on rewatching it, those pieces would fall into place. It would make more sense. And then I'd be like, oh, it's better than mm-hmm. I I thought. That didn't happen. I felt even worse about it. But on the third watch, I felt like I understood it a lot better this most recent time. I was able to make a lot more sense of what was going on. Mm -hmm. Um, There's still elements that I think are needlessly confusing, but I I felt like I understood like the function of what was happening and the general, like, these are the steps, this is the plot, these are the details of the mechanics of the world, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. But what I felt like was still dissatisfying, even on this third time, even though I maybe enjoyed it. I don't know if I'd say I'd enjoyed it the most, but I I enjoyed it more certainly the third time than the second time. But what I, what I still found unsatisfying was that element of just like visual storytelling, like the biggest set piece at the end that should, you know, should be this. It is the climax of the movie. Visually. It's very chaotic. Mm -hmm. Um, It's hard to understand what's going on. And it's, it's not just because of the inversion. I think he could have, structured it or shot it in such a way where we understood more of the details of, you know, what was happening, why they were blowing certain things up, why this person's Mm -hmm. running here, running there, if he had visually been able to structure the story um, a little bit better. So I think it it starts to like suffer under its own weight Mm -hmm. in that regard and with some of the exposition. But overall, I think it's a very, I think it's a fascinating film. And I think the the way he's sort of planting us alongside the protagonist on the inside of this scenario where he's figuring out what's going on along Mm -hmm. with the audience um, is very interesting. Um, Yeah. I just think that could have been a little done a little bit more deftly. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Nolan has always been like a a bit of a clunky filmmaker in terms of visuals. And, it's also what made what allowed him to make such big budget films. I, I've yeah. read he always comes in like under budget and on time. And that's because he's, he's not a perfectionist on set. Like he does uh, only a few takes. And uh, he's pretty functional also as a filmmaker. Like there's not many very artistic shots or very... Um, every shot like has a purpose and a function. And he doesn't linger so much on... Uh, needless elements, or at least uh, elements that aren't directly uh, related to the plot. Um, I think a good example is uh, in this film is the scenes that are shot in Italy, which is obviously like this very exotic, James Bond like uh, location, but he kind of makes it look a bit sterile. There's not much... He's not a romantic... He doesn't have a romantic eye on the world, at least not for this story and... I also not for many of his other stories and that's I'm okay with that generally like as long as I can tell what's going on and the concepts uh, are usually like very interesting in themselves then it's not an issue but yeah as you've said like when you have this complicated uh, concept of inversion even without that it's still how can I put this like I understand after seeing the film five times, I thro- sort of get the sort uh, the the timelines and how they run, and especially when you look at um, Robert Pattinson's character at the end, he goes in reversed and then re-reverses himself or inverses himself, and then he's back on regular time, and then he goes back sort of in reverse again. Yeah. It gets a bit complicated, but I feel like I've I've looked at like some scenes in uh, reverse on YouTube and some graphics of the timelines and I get it like intellectually, but I still feel that when you're watching it, it's so hard to tell what's going on, especially that final scene down in the, in the sort of cave structure. It's hard to tell visually what is happening. And part of that issue is with the concept of inversion itself, but also mostly, yeah, I think it's, he could have shot it with more clarity if he really wanted to communicate uh, what is already a visually complex concept?
0: Yeah, a great counterpoint to the sort of clumsiness of that final scene is the two scenes at the Freeport, which I think is the the, the film's best execution of the concept of inversion, mm-hmm. because y- you sort of intuitively just un, like are able to put all the pieces together. You understand what's going on. You don't need really the exposition telling you that like, oh, it was him, you know, and Neil discovers that it was the protagonist and all these things. Mm-hmm. Um, you just, as soon as they're like, we're going back to the Freeport, the first time I watched it, I started putting the pieces together and I'm like, oh, it's gonna be them against themselves. and and it it intuitively just sort of made sense and you understood, the geography of everything that happened in that scene, even even like the first time I watched it. Um, Maybe I didn't catch every little detail, but like the broader strokes were there. So he's he's definitely Mm -hmm. able to do that. I think he then just like tried to scale that up to such a huge size. And then you have people running around in suits that look similar with only armbands to distinguish themselves. And there's so much happening and, you know, and it's moving very quickly between places and intercutting with the yacht and all this other stuff that it's just, Mm -hmm. yeah, even, even once you look at the diagrams, you know, those things, if you go back and watch that scene, you're still like, I can't, unless you would pause and like rewatch sections over and over, you're not going to be able to comprehend what's going on there, which Some people would argue like that's a fun way to approach a movie as like a puzzle to unwind. But I think when Nolan's emphasis is so much on the like theatrical experience Mm -hmm. where you go, you watch it big and it's there, you can't do any of those things in a theater. So if you can't make sense of the movie until after it's out of theaters, then I think it's a detriment to kind of Mm -hmm. the experience that he's he's trying to create.
1: Yeah, I wonder to what extent he himself was aware of this, that there's this line, uh, which has become quite famous afterwards in people's discussions about the film that you don't have to understand it. You just have to feel it, which is sort of how people have justified the film for not making much sense in certain areas. But for me, that's, I feel like it's, uh, I I wrote it down that it, it feels like a bit of a false dichotomy like. Like, especially the the freeport scene for me is one, as you said, that it is one of the scenes where the concept of inversion is uh, best executed. Right. But for me, it's also the part where uh, that convinced me that the whole concept of inversion, it do- just doesn't quite work. Like, even when I try to not understand it and just feel it, that, there needs to be like a sort of connection between the two because in that uh, fight scene, it's I still find it very difficult to um, relate myself to either one of the characters in the sense that I cannot see like who's punching who and who's uh, like taking a hit right. or who is throwing a punch because it's just it it looks really cool but it doesn't it doesn't feel as visceral as a normal fight scene would where you can clearly tell okay this guy's throwing a punch the other one's catching it he's in pain right now yeah especially when you compare it to the earlier fight scene in uh, in the back of that kitchen which is i think really well done and you can really feel john david washington's physicality in that one and you can feel it in the freeport scene as well but it's more like it feels more choreographed is that word um yeah yeah, it feels a bit more rehearsed and we're trying to make it look like a reverse guy is fighting a regular guy and but yeah it it doesn't quite click for me like on that visceral level like i cannot yeah i have to like sort of squint my eyes and see like who's who's winning (laughs) like is he he losing right now or (laughs) what's going on
0: i think um it's it's interesting on a like a conceptual level but yeah that that when you try to apply that idea of just feeling it um mm-hmm. it doesn't it doesn't quite the movie doesn't actually operate on that level um and i think it's easy to take that line i take that line as sort of i think a lot of people take that line as sort of like a meta commentary on the film itself but i the more i've watched it the more i think i don't think That's how Nolan actually means it because he doesn't, he's not applying that philosophy to the film. Like he Mm -hmm. goes on to explain all this stuff. There's so much exposition in the film. So he's not making the film in the mode of like, I need you to just feel it. It's like that line. It seems to be just a specific way of dealing with the issue of like causality and free will and the reverse causality and like Mm -hmm. how they, how they're experiencing that in the film itself, where, like, actions are happening sort of after they cause them or before, what you know, whatever. Um, mm-hmm. So <laughs> he's he's unintentionally handing us all the meta-commentary on the film, but then it doesn't end up applying to it yeah, very yeah. well because I think that probably wasn't actually his intention. Um,
1: yeah. I do get where he was uh, coming from because time in general is a very cinematically interesting concept you know with film you can slow it down you can speed it up you can cut back and forth and especially nolan has been known to play around with that so it it wasn't surprising to me that he was at i can imagine like the day where he was like oh maybe we can reverse it like yeah and yeah um i sort of get his what was probably his initial enthusiasm about the concept like because Reversed time is a very visual thing. Uh, It looks really interesting to see things, you know, going in a different direction. And I was sort of on board with the concept when it was just reversed objects. But I think for me, when it became just too complicated is when they actually started inversing people. And when you have two sort of active agents or like two beings with agency going in different causal directions, then it's... It, it felt a bit like dividing by zero or something. It, it, it just... Yeah. <laughs> I wonder to what extent Nolan sort of wrote himself into a corner when he probably realized at some point, like, okay, it doesn't... It's a very messy concept. Yeah. But he was probably like uh, a few million dollars into production. and <laughs>
0: But I don't know yet. I feel like the way the movie could have potentially worked better would would have been to lean heavier into that, like unknowing sense of the characters where things are just happening beyond their knowledge and mm-hmm. and that, that that's played to an extent in the film but that's a big ask for mm-hmm. such a large budget um project yeah. and in a sense he's done that kind of thing a little bit in the past with like memento is a little bit more in that space where you know the characters just doesn't know what's going on mm-hmm. and is trying to figure it out and you do kind of you can kind of put the pieces together by the mm-hmm. end but but there's also a a lot that's just kind of nebulous there.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the cool thing about Memento too, is that it's already this sort of temporal pencil movement as they talk about in Tenet, because it it starts at the beginning and the ending, and it uh, has the ending scenes, I think, going in reverse until the film meets in the middle. And that's what I was hoping to see a bit more in Tenet. Um, Like I expected the... There was, it was going to be a climax back at the opera where this, the yes movie also started, but it sort of ended in this regular place at the school where the the little boy went yeah. to. So yeah, I think if... Because the whole clue about the film is that the entire operation was uh, the protagonist or John David Washington's character uh, who doesn't have a name except the protagonist. The whole thing was his operation and he was sort of leading this... Temporal pincer movement and but for me it, it, it's not quite made clear in the film. Like uh, it would have been more interesting, I think, if the opera scene was sort of messy and confusing. But then there would be something at the end that would make it all fall into place. That like we understood, like okay, yes. uh, everything was heading towards this pinpoint in which the future is saved or the present is saved and. Uh, Everything will be all right, but yeah, that um, didn't quite happen. So the whole message at the end for me is also a bit muddled because of it. Um, right. But, uh, yeah, we'll get into the the thematics of the yeah uh, of the
0: film. For a movie where the title is literally like a palindrome, mm-hmm. uh, the lack of symmetry in its structure kind of ends yeah. up being a little bit um, dissatisfied.
1: There's also a lot of uh, palind palindromes. Are they called? Uh, going on with some of the the character names and the opera, and you have Areppo is a character, and then Sator and uh, Rattles, I think, was also something that came back somewhere. There's a lot of those uh, linguistic yeah. inversions going on, but it surprised me then that it didn't happen in the structure of the film itself.
0: Maybe this is a decent way to transition into kind of talking about the themes in the film meaning things like that, mm-hmm. which is just bringing up a general issue that I think maybe time tra- films involving like traveling through time often end up having, because I'm curious what you think about this and how you think mm-hmm. it, it relates to this film, which is causality yeah. yeah. and the way that we tend to think about free will in real life. Like we, we tend to think about meaning as having to do with, uh, choices that we make in the world that have cause and effect. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of, there's obviously a lot of disagreement as to whether or not we even have free will or whether or not that's just a a concept that exists only in our minds. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, we tend to attribute meaning to the idea that we're making decisions and then those decisions have, Mm -hmm. um, have a reaction. But then when you get into time travel films, you either have to sort of like break the grandfather paradox, construct your time travel in an unusual way where maybe there's branching multiverses or something, um, or you have to break causality. or there You run into all these issues, and a lot of time travel films are constructed as a sort of like paradoxical, You know structure where people are traveling back into time but then that's kind of like incepting to use that word incorrectly but like Mm -hmm. this this the structure of this film ultimately is sort of a closed loop Mm -hmm. like after the film ends the protagonist is the one who goes back and starts Mm tenant but then he's told about tenant so you know, there's a paradoxical loop there and there's a bunch of smaller ones that happen within the film and you can just make a movie with that in it and we can kind of accept it. You can say, just feel it. Don't, you don't have to understand it. But I think sometimes that can end up with a scenario where if you think about it too much, what's going on in the film ends up kind of feeling a little meaningless because Mm -hmm. you're removing that element of, cause and reaction in a way that makes this kind of intuitive sense to our brain. So my question is, how do you think there's that relationship between how we think about, you know, causality and meaning in our own lives and film? And is that sort of an inescapable element of a movie like Mm -hmm. this that it might just ultimately feel a little bit, you know, meaningless?
1: Yeah, I think just staying with Tenet for now, um, the film does make a big point in Arguing that uh, I think as one of the characters literally says like, uh, what's happened, happened. So you cannot change anything. And uh, which is also why ignorance is their greatest asset. Like if you don't know, it's you can probably. I'm not sure exactly what they mean with it. I think they meant it in the context uh, that if you're ignorant, then you are more motivated to act maybe in than you would have done if you had known sort of the consequences of whatever
0: was going to happen practically the the ignorance is a way of preventing the future from knowing what they do Mm -hmm. and keeping them Mm -hmm. from like thwarting their actions so like there's they talk about posterity and priya uh, talks about how anything that happens in like a text message or a credit card or anything becomes is a direct message to the future mm-hmm. and so the future is trying to to move back through time and you know invert through time to to trigger this event and they're using the knowledge they have of what these agents did to try to thwart them and pull off this, mm-hmm. this sort of inversion maneuver. yeah exactly yeah and so by keep maintaining ignorance they keep the future from knowing and therefore the people that they're fighting against Seder, from finding out and knowing how mm-hmm. they prevented the destruction so on a on a practical level mm-hmm. uh that i think is the function of ignorance in the film yeah. but thematically it also plays a role sorry that was a tangent yeah. of what No you that's were a saying.
1: very i think that's a clever way to use a film's plot to uh circumvent some messy (laughs) casualties a little bit because i was already i think it was when i was re-watching it last night i was uh, coming at the scene with the where it was revealed that the bad guy um would use the knowledge of the heist to go back in time and twist it to his advantage but then like a bit later was i was thinking like wait if He goes back in time then that's already happened to the ones who are experiencing it in regular time so they communicate what he is already doing and it sort of got me like stuck in this loop where yeah i realized you don't it's probably best not to think too much about it on the logical level but i think thematically um it's gonna sound a bit boring but i've always disliked the whole question about free will and causality because I I only see two outcomes like either the future is open and my choices matter and I can make meaningful actions or the future is set and my actions are predetermined but I don't have access to that future so I have to pretend like everything matters so either we have free will or either we have the illusion of free will and I think that's The big hurdle that um, time travel stories always, almost always have is that they sort of have to break that reality. They have to take away what is for us like that fundamentally unknowable thing and they have to answer what essentially cannot be answered in my opinion. And that's why you often see like either they can change something, but then it's either a parallel timeline or something like that to to justify it or it's a closed loop where you, as you see, uh, often see where characters go back in time and then it turns out it's actually going back in time that caused whatever it was they wanted to prevent in the first place or something like that.
0: It seems like the stance of Tenet is like you said, what's happened happened. Mm-hmm. And it's, there is sort of like a deterministic flow to things, but that like the characters within that just sort of have to accept that and take it on a kind of faith that that their actions still matter in spite of, Mm -hmm. you know, that. Like, Neil's at the end choosing to go in and sacrifice himself, just, you know, knowing that he will die, but kind of taking it on faith that that is the only way to accomplish what they needed to accomplish, that it can't be... um, that it can't be changed. Yeah,
1: I agree. Yeah, I think that's something that's been present in some other Nolan films too. Like Interstellar had this try to argue for uh, that, we, that that there isn't just the science, but we also have our instinct and our intuition. And in that case, it was love, which is also this tangible force that we can trust to sort of guide us into specific directions. And I think in Tenet, it also came back a little bit, as you said, with Robert Patterson's character, who at the end explicitly expresses that he has faith in the mechanics of the world. And I think the one of the things that guides them is also something that the protagonist at one point says, like, or he questions, her, like, wait, if they're trying to destroy us, doesn't mean us being here now, does that mean that it never happened, that we won? Right. So... In that sense, you, there is a sort of underlying feeling that they've already won, like the universe will, it, it's going in the right direction, at least for them, maybe not for the future, but <laughs> at yeah. least for these characters <laughs> in this present moment, it looks like they've pre- prevented Armageddon because they're still there to prevent it, which as a result, I think it does make sense for the characters to have that blind faith in, uh, as they say at the Mechanics of the World, because they know it will, if they trust what needs to be done, then it will probably end up all right, if that makes
0: sense. Yeah, I just, I think if I was in their position and I had that that amount of faith that's like, oh, if I'm here, then uh, then we're we succeed, we're safe, then I'd be like, well, I could just fly off to, you know, an island somewhere mm-hmm. relax on the beach and it'll all be fine because i'm here and uh, and uh, somebody else will mm-hmm. sort it out <laughs> but that's why i'm not a temporal mm-hmm. secret agent
1: or may- maybe it's, that's just the part that you had to play in that whole story <laughs> right right <laughs> yeah but it's sort of the it, it goes back to the uh the first scene where the protagonist encounters the concept of inversion with the inverted bullet where he says it's, it's instinct basically. So I think that's at the end what also kind of drives the characters. It's just a feeling of instinct. And yeah, apparently their feeling of instinct heads into a different direction than yours maybe, but... Than <laughs> <laughs> mine, yeah.
0: Well, he's, I mean, he's just doing what what he he's kind of following his program Mm -hmm. as a character or his script he's just doing the secret agent he's 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 given a mission Mm -hmm. and then he completes that mission and um you know it it wouldn't it wouldn't be in his character to abort that mission Mm -hmm. and just leave because
1: and he's he's also specifically characterized as someone who who cares about humanity and cares about human beings even in the right uh, first scene at the opera um which i still find very confusing as to what's going on exactly but anyways um at one point he he notices that some of the people are placing bombs to blow up uh what they call the cheap seats or just the the the, right. the, the regular citizens who are attending and then uh, the protagonist is like, uh, we're gonna save them, and the other one's like, well, but that's not our mission. And he says, it's it's mine now. Like he specifically makes a choice yeah. to do the right thing for these people, despite of the uh, initial mission statement. So there's, I think, a strong bit of characterization there that he will always do what is right for the 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 how he yeah. can save or help the most people around him, and you see it later on, obviously, when he uh tries to safeguard Elizabeth uh the Beckys the Becky's uh I'm not sure how yeah. to cat yeah last name. At least her character. So yeah I, I do think that his instinct is also then defined by I have to do whatever I can to to make this right and save humanity. Yeah. yeah.
0: I think about this this film in relationship to Interstellar. Mm-hmm which slight spoilers for Interstellar, but they're, they're both about humans in the future sort of like interacting with humans in the film's present, but in sort of inverted ways like in Interstellar, it's humans way in the future saving current humanity. Mm-hmm. And in Tenant, it's, it's humans in the far future sort of trying to destroy. Yep present humanity because in a sense they're being destroyed by present humanity Mm -hmm. so there's this this war you know in the film humanity's present irresponsibility with climate and the planet Mm -hmm. is causing the future to be uninhabitable so they're they're trying to take out the past in a sense because that's Mm -hmm. the only way they can save themselves by reversing time but in interstellar you have this very clear like Humanity is saving us and it's love and love is the impulse of humanity that that is saving us. Do you think there's as clear of a message or what do you think if Interstellar is about love will save us, mm-hmm. what is what is tenant about? What do you think Nolan's saying with it? I've th-
1: thought a lot about what you just said and the contradicting or contradictory views of human destiny in both of those films because in interstellar there's also a bit of a an environmental collapse i'm not sure if it's right i don't remember it being specifically caused by humanity in interstellar or just some vaguer sense of the planets depleting and dying and now the crops won't grow and we have to get the, get the hell out of here but i'm interested to Find out where Nolan's mind at in regards to like what are what is humanity's ultimate destiny? Because in Interstellar he's like extremely optimistic, because not only do we transcend our planet and establish ourselves throughout the universe, we also transcend eventually at least the boundaries of space and time, or at least the current dimensions that we inhabit, to become these 2001 space oddity type. Superhumans, almost. Um, yeah, it's it's almost like a godlike ascension. And whereas in Tenet, as you said, it does feel more cynical. It feels like there's more of an an, an angry future that's coming back to harm us. And even the, those uh, the what's it called the sort of code that they, the algorithm for destruction that's being sent back in time. And it's these very clunky. Metal things. It doesn't feel like like advanced technology at all. It feels like almost like a regression. So yeah, I'm I'm a bit conflicted about what that reversal means, at least for like what Nolan has he changed his mind about humanity in the meantime, or right. was he was he not strongly attached to either view of humanity anyways, and he just thought it was interesting for the context of each story. I do think it fits this story like. I do think the concept of the future attacking us is a very interesting and um, relevant sentiment uh, in a way because there's so much going on now with climate change and fear for the future and the harmful things we're doing to future generations that I do like how this film explicitly makes the future come back at us. Like it makes it explicit that We have, our actions have consequences and those consequences will inverse time and throw them back into our face, sort of. But yeah, what it means thematically, I'm not a hundred percent sure.
0: Did you have any thoughts on that? I was thinking about this last night and as you're talking about it, some of it is kind of coming, Mm -hmm. crystallizing. In a sense, I think Tenet has a bleaker view of of future humanity. Mm -hmm. But I don't think they're necessarily in conflict, Tenet and Interstellar, I don't think are necessarily in conflict with each other, in that I think Interstellar is sort of an appeal to love of, Mm -hmm. like, if humanity embraces this virtue, you know, that is sort of what will save them. Um, and, And Tenet, I think, actually follows a similar path in that, like you were saying, the protagonist and his love of humanity... Is a core part of his character, and he is ultimately does kind of save the world or prevent inversion. Mm -hmm. And the bad guy, it seems like an appeal against despair and against sort of this like nihilistic, you know, satyr as the villain Mm -hmm. is someone who says, you know, if I can't have it, nobody can. This just feeling of resignation, Mm -hmm. despair. And so he's coming at it in a different way, and he's presenting how f- humanity in the future is differently. Um, but I think in terms of how, like, which values and virtues he's um, exemplifying or mm-hmm. or kind of provoking the the viewer towards, I think they they still kind of fit together. Yeah, it's it's definitely in- interesting. I noticed that the bit about despair more vividly this time. Uh, that's a big part of Kat's arc, which is a part of the film that I like. She she starts as you know being envious of the woman jumping, diving off of the dock. Mm-hmm. She wants to get out. She has despair. Her and Sater talk about that in the scene where um, she holds a gun to his head, and then he beats her. He says, "You have like despair in her eyes." And then at the end, when she confronts him. This is actually one part of the film, going back to the technical bits, where I think he's doing storytelling without exposition like really well. Mm-hmm. Her whole arc is portrayed in this scene where she comes back, and then she says, you know, it's repeating a line that Sater had said earlier, like, despair scars over into anger, and her despair has turned into anger, and she acts against him, the, you know, sort of, a, she's able to do it this time. And she becomes the woman who's diving off of the boat. She sort of fulfills that desire that Mm -hmm. she has for herself. And she even like, you can see her even waiting to make sure she sees herself diving off the boat because there's this sense in which like, I I don't know that arc is Mm -hmm. just very satisfyingly fulfilled, but there's an argument there against despair and Seder really like encapsulates that despair. He's, killing himself and taking everyone with him. He even says, like, my greatest sin was bringing a child into the world that I know will be destroyed. Mm-hmm. And I, I definitely think there's a positioning of just, like, giving up, resigning to to all of it that, you know, Nolan is sort of making an argument against.
1: Yeah, those are good points. Um, I agree with Kat's character arc. Like, I thought that was really satisfying, as you said. Also, a bit like a classic bit of Nolan foreshadowing with the woman diving off the boat, right but and yeah, we haven't talked about the villain as much um but I also think, in addition to what you said, it's interesting that he is portrayed at least at first as this billionaire character who materially has everything, like he has accumulated wealth beyond anyone else, he has power, he has. Influence, but he also, he lacks love. Like he knows he is married to a woman who doesn't love him. Yeah. And he basically, he, he's still is bound to his physical body, which is failing him due to his cancer. He's, he's, he has all the money in the world, but it doesn't, it doesn't buy him health. It doesn't buy him a future. It doesn't buy him time. And that's now that I think of it also adds to, I think the commentary of, A bit of the it does play a little bit into the climate change angle like the we're hoarding wealth right now or at least the the sator type characters even though it doesn't add anything meaningful and will probably only end in despair and resentment and jealousy also or maybe the the sort of envy that drives people to say like if you can't have it then or, or if i can't have it then no one else can which is this grandiose sense of entitlement also. and in that sense, the protagonist also stands out because he at the at the beginning he has to pretend to be a billionaire, but he immediately kind of fails at it. he's or at least cat yeah. immediately recognizes that he's just trying to be one of those people, even though he's clearly not, which I thought was pretty interesting. He is the quote unquote working man in that scenario who, isn't isn't familiar with the ways or the 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 appearances and behaviors of the super wealthy? Yeah, it probably doesn't hold up as strongly as a complete commentary on the nature of capital and climate change and that sort of stuff. It's right. really just an, an an undercurrent almost. But I do think it plays nicely into, as you said, the more the archetypal feelings of despair and faith and the just a will to go on and to make an effort and to stand for what you believe in and to to make an to act to try and make it happen
0: there's this sense of like almost in the present struggling with ourselves to prevent the bomb like a line they say mm-hmm. is like they talk about the bomb that didn't go off at the end um, mm-hmm. and nobody knowing about that and the sense in which i think towards Maybe it's commentary on climate that preventing climate change being a very like unromantic notion because mm-hmm. it involves like difficult actions taken now to stop something that hasn't even happened yet. Mm-hmm. And there's a sense in which we're struggling with ourselves and struggling against the tendency towards, you know, accumulation of wealth in order to to do that. Mm-hmm. I don't know how clear that that message is, but the ingredients, the ingredients of that message are definitely there. Um, And I I definitely thought about them more on my third watch Mm -hmm. than I did the first few times. I think it's one of those films where there's so much going on technically in the story from a plot, you know, just like the mechanics of the plot that you have to wrap your head around that it can be kind of difficult to get to those layers underneath before, until, unless you can just kind of set those mechanics aside yeah. or, or just kind of take them for granted.
1: Yeah. I, I was going to say, I definitely agree. I, I think especially, the, I remember the first time I saw the film, I was kind of bored for the first hour or so. I remember when the protagonist first steps into the inversion machine and he goes out into the other end. That for me is where the film was like I remember thinking, okay, now now we're getting started. Yeah, and uh, because at first there's a lot of plot, like a subplot about the 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 forged uh, painting or the, right that Sador holds over Kat, even though it doesn't make sense because he's so wealthy and violent. Like, why does he need this ace in the hole or something? He can just yeah he he has her inner grip on the the the, the virtue of his power and ability to for violence alone but then again it does play into how the plot works out so I can get from okay it was necessary to get from A to B and from B to C but yeah it definitely could have been uh, I think the film could have been shorter and it could have been more clearer Um, but I was also thinking about what you said about the bomb that didn't go off is that it that it also kind of plays into the things we take for granted like in the film they there's this whole sense throughout the film, especially when you on on rewatch, is that they've already won, like at the beginning, because the world is already, as we've talked about, like if they if Armageddon had happened, it had happened, then none of them would have been there to prevent it, and all of it would have been ended already. So the fact that the world exists is already this fact that we or this victory almost that we take for granted because we we, it's it's difficult to see the bomb that didn't go off yeah and you see it also a bit with with especially with the pandemic right now and we'll probably see it with climate change that whenever we what we do the measures we do to prevent those things from happening is they're not as perceivable as the things that do happen yeah like there was uh, i remember there was a in my country the netherlands uh, there was a press conference where one journalist or, or a reporter remarked at the end that the, the the prime minister was kind of in a tough spot, because if something bad had happened, like the infections would go up or hospitalizations would have gone up, then people would have been angry because we didn't do enough. But if they had acted like in a more extreme way or taken more measures and then people would also have been angry because then there wouldn't have been something bad that right. would have happened. And yeah. The the results wouldn't have been perceivable, so it was this kind of catch twenty two where there was no no sort there was no right course of action in that sense. Like you do too much, and people will think you were overly worried, and you do too little, and then you didn't do enough. And I think that um, at least in the context of uh, Tenet, it sort of plays into the whole story, like uh, because yeah. If, the bomb had gone off there would be no one there to at least not in that story yeah that the, the, the yeah. whole film the reality would have been wiped out including cat's son which is still <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's my favorite bad line of uh, expository dialogue from any Nolan film probably
0: <laughs> when I watched it last night it was the first time my wife had watched it she watched it with me and mm-hmm. that line came along and she just laughed and i was like yeah, it's... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> i cannot I, is uh
1: <laughs> i do not understand how that one went into the edit
0: <laughs> yeah the it, at some point i made fun of the line where somebody's explaining why he can't breathe regular air through his mm-hmm. lungs or something and the the one prop exposition character who never shows up again is like talking to the protagonist. And she's like, he's like, what would happen if something, you know, takes place? And she's like, annihilation. And he goes, that would be bad, right? (laughs) And I was like, that's such a dumb line. And then everybody in my comments (laughs) were like, it's a joke. It's dry humor or whatever. And I was like, that, I think that might, that one might be a joke. But I was like, I can't be sure when that other line also exists. (laughs) <laughs> and it's pretty clearly like not a joke just a terrible line <laughs> but uh yeah but i do think that john david washington he got
1: some subtle hu- humor in there he has some yeah so. yeah i think nolan is pretty underrated for making low-key jokes low-key throughout jokes, uh, yeah. all of his films but yeah um where were we on the uh thematic
0: stuff i think we've talked about most of of what I saw in it thematically climate, Mm -hmm. you know, I think if there is something if if there is a way to summarize, look through all the complex bits Mm -hmm. and the weight that this film has, I do think he is trying to say something about climate and taking action in spite of sort of an unknowable outcome on a sort of faith. And you know, moving away from despair and embracing our better angels in the sense of like uh, fighting for humanity instead of against it. So you know, I think I think all of that's there. It's less. Mm-hmm. It's less clear. It's it's not as maybe even on on the nose as it is in Interstellar. One line I have a question about mm-hmm. is. The protagonist calls Seder a traitor, and he kind of doesn't blame the future for wanting to save them in verse time and save themselves. Mm-hmm. He says, like, each generation fights for its own survival, mm-hmm. and he almost blames Seder for being a traitor to his generation. Oh, yeah. Um, and he doesn't necessarily blame the future for doing what they can to kind of save the future. Mm-hmm. Did you have any thoughts about that? Or, um what do you think of that concept in the film?
1: I'm not sure if I specifically cut that line, at least not on my last viewing. But yeah, I do think it just plays into the idea of sort of moving forward. Like you cannot, it, it, it's easy to blame past generations or easy to lay blame somewhere else and just uh, blame something that would allow you to be fatalistic and cynical and passive towards your own capacity to act and your own capacity to still make changes and perhaps help things move forward for the better. Yeah. So yeah, in that sense, maybe Seder or he was viewing Seder as someone who facilitated that worst aspect of the future generations, because um, it's also, I think mentioned somewhere that the future is not unanimously attacking the present it's just a right. few bad actors that are trying to do it in the same way that in the future the protagonist is also fine or founding tenet so there's also yeah. a force for good that's helping them from the future which is also made clear in the fir- very first scene where the protagonist is saved by uh who is later revealed as uh, robert Pattinson's character neil And then later again, when the the, the cavalry comes in, as they say it, um, at least from the protagonist's perspective, at least the part that we follow as the audience, he also, he's attacked by the future, but he also gets a lot of help from the future. So it's not, there's not a unanimous um, disgruntled future that's coming back to harm us. It's only uh, just as in this present, there's the protagonist who's willing to fight for good and there's Sador who is trying to uh destroy it all or wipe it all out out of despair and i can imagine that in the future there's probably uh or every generation has those same forces going on to fight for dominance with each other in in, in a way and yeah i think in that sense it's it's it makes sense that every generation has to fight that same battle. Every generation has to fight despair in favor of, uh, willpower and will to live and proactive, um, action taking and, uh, what will you, um, so yeah, that's pretty much, I think my thoughts about it
0: seems to fit. Yeah. I think, I think, um. I mean, do you have a, a final thoughts or personal takeaway beyond that? I think I kind of already, I'm realizing I, I think I already articulated mine. and mm-hmm. That sounds like a summary.
1: Yeah. My main takeaway is I think now, as I was explaining all that, it fell into place for me a little bit with every generation has competing forces and we have to yeah. all, it's worthwhile to make an effort, even though the future look, looks bleak or maybe the past was to blame for it yeah but on a more filmmaking level yeah i i think we've covered it as well like enough I, I think it was way too convoluted i think it could have been it could have been like easy 20 minutes shorter if it the plot had been tightened around the thematic elements which nolan is usually pretty good at but yeah. this one felt yeah. more like at times like Dark Knight Rises, where there were some thematic elements, but they felt more like window dressing for what was really like a needlessly convoluted plot. Also, yeah, but yeah, I'm I'm, I'm glad he made it. I think it's it, it, it seemed like one of his passion projects, and I always enjoy standalone films that are not based on, especially nowadays, that are not based on existing franchises or comic books or whatever. Yeah, um, so I'm glad it did well. Also, at least I. I think it did pretty well considering the pandemic that was still going on.
0: It 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 opened fairly roughly, at least here. Hmm. But I don't know. Maybe over the I think maybe over the long run, it's hmm. it's managed to do all right. But yeah, I I agree. I I think I'm glad it exists. I had a lot of fun watching it the the mm-hmm. the three times that I have. I think I get it's hard to it's hard to be super mad at a movie that you know. I've like willingly watched so many times. Yeah. But I think I'm extra critical of Nolan because it often feels like he's like so close to making something yeah, that would be like truly in, like incredible, like one of the great films. Uh, but then he, it just sort of crumbles under its own weight a little mm-hmm. bit or, you know, he misses it in a few a few yeah. places. And this, this was one of those. So I enjoy it. There's a lot of elements that I like. I think thematically, there's interesting stuff going on. But yeah, ultimately, I I agree that there's just a bit too much complexity. And in ways that it could be like, I think about one of the little examples is like the whole concept of heat transference in the body reverses when you're Mm -hmm. inverted. And so like he bursts into flames, but (laughs) he actually gets pneumonia. It's like, you're inventing this whole concept, it doesn't, it doesn't actually exist. So that's just something they tacked he tacked on there as like mm-hmm. a bonus thing, and it doesn't come into play anywhere else in the story. It's mm-hmm. just like a little thing, and it and those little kind, those little tiny things kind of add up to make it an already complicated film that's hard to wrap your mind around, like needlessly complex. I think so. Yeah, imperfect, but I'd much rather watch Nolan make an, a very interesting imperfect film than some of the other. Yeah just same stories recycled over and over again that we get. So
1: Yeah, I was also going to add as a final note that if I sound critical of a film, then it's usually because I was invested and interested and I wanted it to stick the landing yeah. or just be a little bit clearer or better. Um, because when you have like an average or like a, an all-over bad film, then I usually do not even care enough to talk, talk about, about it. it. Like yeah, it it, it, <laughs> it it leaves my brain as quickly as... the the film's runtime so yeah that's also the reason that i wanted to discuss tenet because i think it's a film with potential and a film with unique qualities and a film that offers entertainment but also an interesting example of how it doesn't always work and i think that's also a good sign of like a a good bad film to sort of put it that way is that you mm-hmm. can actually that you can still learn something constructive about it from in filmmaking terms you can yeah uh, a good bad film also it still reveals like interesting insights yeah. or thoughts or whatever so yeah i'm glad uh, we got to talk about it
0: last question to end on do you think neil is max sater's son
1: i thought so at first i've seen it Discredited somewhere or debunked. Um, I'm not sure how, but if it was, I think it would have been a missed opportunity to not make it clear. Like especially Nolan is so well known for doing endings right. I think he also he often ends with this monologue and or some twist coming together, like in the Prestige, and or at least with some emotional note, as in uh, Inception, where you have the Hans Zimmer time. blasting off and it just it ends on his films always tend to end on the high note which is something that i was also missing here it just sort of adds or ends with this strange elimination of the uh arms dealer and the protagonist sort of just sitting in the back of the car and yeah i wish that there could have been a bit more about with that about uh like a bit more of an emotional note. I think the soundtrack could have been, could have done more work there because overall I do, we haven't mentioned it, but I really liked the soundtrack. Um, But I wished it had like that, at least one emotional track that sort of, that got my emotions moving a little bit more than they did at the end.
0: That was, that was another critique that I had not to tack things on at the end here. But Mm -hmm. I think I struggled to connect with anybody except the dynamic between Neil And uh, the protagonist, Mm -hmm. I think, was really well done. Like, there is some emotion there, especially the second time you watch it, sort of the significance, like watching them meet for the first time and Mm -hmm. that whole concept of like Neil already knowing the protagonist and then also watching them say goodbye to each other, knowing that like it's only the end for one of them is such a great uh, concept. Um, But then, like, I don't really understand the relationship between protagonist and Kat and then Kat's Mm -hmm. son is just... Kat feels kind of emotionally empty because her son is just sort of a line of exposition. Uh, But uh, so that's something I think could have made it a little bit more engaging as well. I haven't seen the videos debunking the theory about Matt, but I was looking at the script, the film script, because I wanted to see some lines Mm -hmm. that I had missed last night when I was watching it. And I found this bit where i don't know if it's a concept that maybe he was planning and then they cut it out Uh, Seder says my greatest sin was to bring a son into the world i knew was ending do you think god will forgive me and then the protagonist says for killing your son no and Seder says he should understand he killed his own and then it cuts to neil in the final scene going towards that the inversion in, mm. like, underground, <laughs> um, and in the in the final version of the film, that line is cut out, Seder doesn't say. Oh, okay. um, it just cuts off at, do you think God will forgive me? And he doesn't say about that thing about his son killing his own yeah. life, I guess, is what he's implying there. So I thought that was interesting. That would have, in my mind, that would have been oh, like yeah. a definitive clue that would have been like, mm-hmm. he is, because Especially combined with that edit, you're sort of insinuating that Neil in mm-hmm. in is willing to take his own life, kind of connecting him to Seder's son in an interesting yeah. way. But then it also implies that Seder knows somehow that Neil died, which I guess I mm-hmm. guess that Seder is future Seder at that moment coming back after those things have already happened. So maybe he would know that. I don't know how he would have. Um, yeah. So maybe that was just too much and it got cut out, but I just thought that was interesting.
1: Yeah. I also lastly like I still think it's a very funny image to think that because Neil died in inverse mode, right? So he was inverse uh, I think when he Yes, yes. So so I was thinking like like weeks before the events of that scene that would be like a decomposed body right there that's sort of right, slowly right. recomposing <laughs> before it Yeah. <laughs> before it suddenly <laughs> resurrects <laughs> there's a whole bunch yeah. of those little things that just it make the make it don't the concept quite of, make sense yeah but it do make it a bit funny like yeah. probably
0: more funny than it uh, was meant <laughs> it was to, be. <laughs> to be yeah that's Nolan's dry sense of humor <laughs> for you yeah <it. laughs> alright well uh, I think that's all we have to say about Tenet uh, if we got into theories we could probably go for another 30 minutes but that's not That's not what this podcast is about. It's about cinema of meaning. Thank you everyone for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please check us out on our creator-owned streaming service, Nebula, where you can listen to all of our episodes a week early. Right now, the best way you can get access to Nebula is by signing up for Curiosity Stream, which comes with a free Nebula subscription. To learn more about that, just follow the link in the show notes, and we'll see you again next time.